This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So what I want to talk about is, um, on the one hand, the scientific discovery of exoplanets, so planets outside of our solar system, uh, the scientific speculation about the existence of extraterrestrials, and then there's sort of a combination of obviously the, like um, theological truths that I just want to draw your attention to, and also some wild theological speculation on, on how we should think about the existence, the existence of other planets, the possible existence of extraterrestrials, in light of what we know uh, about creation, uh, as well as well as uh, salvation. So one of my favorite uh, pictures of our home planet, the Earth, uh, is uh, this one where we're looking back from Saturn. So we're seeing basically Earth, you know, through through the rings of Saturn. Because I think it brings home both sort of the smallness and preciousness uh, of the Earth, but also that we exist within this context uh, of, a, of a planetary system, of our solar system. Uh, up until not too long ago, uh, so about 30 years ago, uh, the planets in our solar systems, uh, in our solar system, uh, were the only ones we knew about for sure, that, that they were the only ones we knew absolutely certain that they existed. Uh, however, we had, um, we, we, uh, we suspected that there were other planets out there uh, long before that we had actually seen them. And one just comes from the fact that the sun is a pretty normal star. And I think there is uh, a general idea within the scientific community that um, you don't expect things, like you expect, if you see one thing, you expect to see many more of the same thing. That it's basically this, this searching for patterns. The other reason for uh, the suspicion that there should be other planets out there comes from our understanding of how a sun like the star forms. So a sun like the star uh, emerges out uh, of the so-called interstellar medium. So this is the gas and dust that exists between stars. Um, in this um, matter, you sometimes get overdensities. We call them clouds. And these clouds can become massive enough that they start to implode under their own gravity. And that's the beginning of forming from your star. Uh, so what we discovered or had seen, have seen that for many, many decades uh, is that as a part of this collapse towards forming a star, you don't just form a star, but you form a star with a disk around it. And this kind of disk uh, is where we suspect that planets uh, are forming. Um, we should need to result in that most planetary system like our own should have all the planets in a plane, uh, which comes out of forming from, from this disk. Uh, but it's quite different, of course, to suspect that something exists and to have observational evidence or proof uh, that it exists. And uh, so about 20, 30 years ago, uh, I guess more like 30 years ago, the first um, direct observations of exoplanets started to trickle in. Uh, as I said, not completely unexpected. Uh, what was unexpected, though, was the nature of these uh, early discovered uh, exoplanets. The very first exoplanet that was discovered uh, was this really weird planet orbiting a so-called neutron star. This is not really a proper star, but 
a leftover uh, from an exploding star, supernovae. Uh, the, the second uh, uh, first planet that, that we saw was not much better in terms of its weirdness. Uh, it, was, it was a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting so close to the to its star that the full year orbit uh, only took uh, only takes four days uh, for this planet. Uh, so almost immediately when we started seeing these exoplanets, uh, we saw that we couldn't really predict their properties based on what we knew from the solar system. And I'll come back to that. But before going into more what we have learned about exoplanets since I do want to take just a moment and explain how astronomers go about uh, detecting these, these exoplanets. Uh, there are two primary techniques uh, that astronomers make use of to figure out if a star uh, has a planet orbiting around it. Uh, one is um, the, the one that was used to make these initial discoveries is the so-called radial velocity method. The radial velocity method makes use of the what we have known for a long time, since at least the time of Newton, which is that if you have a star and a planet, and the planet is orbiting the star, that's actually only an approximation. What's really going on is that both the star and the planet are orbiting the center of mass. And this means that as the planet moves, so, so does the star. And if we look at the light from the star, we can see that sometimes then the light is slightly redshifted as the star is moving away from us, and sometimes it's slightly blue shifted as it's moving uh, toward us. And th this is one of the ways that we can infer a planet, even though we can't see it directly. The other method, and this one has really been responsible for most of the exoplanet discoveries, is this actually a very intuitive uh, detection method, the so-called transit method, uh, where when a, planet, when a planet passes in front of its star with respect to us, we just see a dip in the light from the star. And that's a way to detect, to again, to infer the presence of an otherwise unseen exoplanet. So through these two techniques and a couple of others, uh, we now know of thousands of planets uh, around other stars, and that these planets come in just all uh, shapes, sizes, uh, compositions that we could imagine, and many that we couldn't imagine uh, for that matter. Uh, the, the, uh, based on these uh, surveys of, of exoplanets towards uh, other stars, uh, we now know that pretty much every star has a planetary system around it. These exoplanets, it's not just that they exist, they're extremely common. Uh, so when you look up at the night sky and, and you look at the stars, really what you're looking at are solar systems. Um, you know, systems that would have been considered an entire universe uh, a few hundred uh, years ago. Uh, I don't know how that makes you feel. To me, it actually makes the whole universe feel a bit more homey or cozy to know that there are this um, wonderful abundance of, of words uh, out there, some of them perhaps rather similar uh, to our own. Uh, we can say more about these planets than that they exist. Uh, both of these methods that I tried to explain that we use to detect uh, planets, um, they're also sensitive to the size or the mass of the planet. So if we're thinking about the transiting method where we detect, you know, the planet passes in front, we see this dip in the stellar uh, intensity. Well, if you have a bigger planet, you see a bigger dip. Smaller planets, smaller, uh, smaller dip in the stellar, stellar light. 
So we can use those kind of tricks to infer um, not just if there is a planet, but how big it is. And one of the things that we have found is that on average, exoplanetary system, systems look nothing like the one we're inhabiting. So in our solar system, we have sort of three categories of planets. We have the small rocky ones, so these are the inner four planets. Then we have uh, two ice giants, Neptune and Uranus. And then we have two gas giants. Uh, but there's a pretty big gap between Earth on the one hand and Neptune and Uranus on the others. And, and I think before we saw exoplanets, we kind of just assumed that you either form a small planet or you form a big planet when you form planets. But what exoplanet studies have shown us is that, that the most common planet uh, that we find is an in-between planet. It's sort of bigger than Earth, smaller than Neptune. Uh, these are sometimes called super-Earths or sub-Neptunes, uh, dependent on what you think that these planets are like. But already this, looking at these sizes uh, show us that um, you know, the planetary words out there are uh, much different from what, what we could have imagined. And if we were to sort of visually compare what a typical exoplanetary system looks like compared to something like Earth, it would probably be something like this, where you have, yes, this is not typical, this is one of the systems where we have seen the most planets in the single system, but where most of the planets are of this in-between uh, in between size. So what does uh, this, this all mean? Or like, what, what are the possible theological uh, impact of this discovery of the ex exoplanets? Well, um, one uh, potentially negative spin that has sometimes been put, if we think about uh, exoplanets versus sort of a biblical creation story, um, is that it seems to support a, a story that has been told by skeptics for quite some time, uh, was skeptics of the Christian story for, for quite some time, which is that as history unfolds, we have gradually moved away uh, from the cosmic center and into its periphery. So if you think back, you know, in the pre-scientific age, so pre-Copernicus, pre-Galileo, uh, we believe that the Earth uh, was the center of the universe, you know, following the Aristotelian uh, cosmology. And I think too many things that, okay, in, in that, if that is the cosmos you inhabit may, and humans are the most advanced creatures at the center of that cosmos, uh, maybe it makes sense uh, to think that uh, the creator of this cosmos would have a special interest in this most sort of complex and advanced, advanced creature in, in the universe. Uh, but as uh, you know, history advanced, uh, Copernicus, Galileo, and Kepler together moved the Earth from the center uh, of the universe to orbit around the sun, which you know, is, is bad enough. Uh, but then modern astronomy, early modern astronomy, moved the sun from the center uh, into an orbit uh, around the center of our galaxy. And then not even the center of our galaxy turned out to be very much of a center at all. So is this something that uh, poses a threat uh, to Christianity as traditionally understood? I am absolutely convinced that, that it does not. So first of all, our location, you know, both in the, you know, away from the center of the solar system and away from the center of the galaxy 
Uh, that is simply a necessity if we want to uh, respect the laws of nature such as they seem to be, uh, sort of laws of nature that govern you know, the structure, the processes, the evolution of our, of our cosmos. I mean, we living at the, at the center of the, uh, the solar system is obviously the sun. That would not be a very good place for life to, to exist. At the center of the galaxy is a giant black hole, also not something that is very, very life uh, friendly. So if you, um, if you think that the, the best way to sort of, uh, I guess, for God to reveal himself, or the only way that God reveals himself is through miracles, then maybe it's problematic that it seems that we can explain where we're sitting uh, through an understanding of the laws of nature. But there's a long tradition within the, the church uh, to, uh, to, to really see that, the, the, that God is revealed in the amazing order of the universe. This is something you can read both in the Psalms and the, and the church fathers. Uh, I am particularly fond of you know, the Psalms where we can read things such as, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God the firmament proclaims the works of his hand, day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night whispers knowledge. Whereas this are predictable order that's part of the revelation of God in his cosmos. And in some sense, this order now only seems more complete uh, when, when we know uh, that, that our planets, planets around other stars, are just a natural outcome of the way the stars, uh, stars form. Uh, it is not something that requires any sort of special intervention from God, uh, which, for example, Newton thought was necessary. Another thing that's being revealed by these exoplanetary studies uh, is that while uh, well, planets are very common, uh, the planetary systems that we're finding are very unexpected. They are not something we could have predicted from just studying our, our own solar system. Uh, so, it, the, overall, the universe just continues to seem a more interesting place than we could have uh, thought in, into being. Uh, you know, each star hosts, uh, hosts its own word, but the shape of these words uh, vary a lot. I think revealing a certain creativity uh, of the universe, or rather of the universe uh, maker. Uh, to me, it suggests, you know, a creator artist that really enjoys uh, painting with all the colors rather than just using a subset of them. So, plan so planets, as we've already been talking about, are incredibly common. Does that mean that we should expect uh, extraterrestrial life uh, to be common uh, as well? Well, it's, um, I I'll come back to you in a few minutes how we're going to try to detect it, but so far, we have not detected any life outside of Earth. So anything that we're talking about or the prevalence of extraterrestrial life is going to be a speculation. We can, of course, try to use scientific discoveries to guide the speculation. But I guess the number one thing I just want to make sure is clear is that it is not uh, at all obvious that there is life out there. I happen to think that there, there will be. But until we have um, some you know, tangible proof, it is speculation, similar to how the presence of exoplanets was speculation just, just a few decades ago. 
but one way that we can try to start estimating the likelihood of life on other planets is to look at the trajectory, the origin and trajectory of life uh, here on Earth. So if we look back uh, in time uh, here on Earth, well, the Earth formed around 4.6 uh, billion years ago. Uh, within sort of less than a billion years, um, there was life. And actually, if you take into account that the Earth had this giant encounter with a Mars-sized object that sort of melted the entire surface of Earth, there's really a life, life on Earth within sort of 500 million years ago from when it cooled down enough that you could even think that there's possible that there is life there. And one life is detected uh, somewhere between three and a half and 3.8 billion years ago. Um, it is already very abundant and very complex, which suggests that by then life has already been, been around for a long time. Maybe it took less than a hundred million years for life to come into existence. Now for on human time scales, of course, a hundred million years is a long time. For a planet, it's not. So a planet like the Earth will live close to 10 billion years. Uh, and the fact that it seems like life needed only maybe a percent uh, of that time to come into existence, existence suggests that the ordinance of life happens rather efficiently and rather, rather quickly. And this, of course, increases uh, the chances of it also happening on other planets. A slightly more sophisticated way of, of looking at it is trying to understand exactly how life originated here on Earth and then how often we can expect to encounter similar environments uh, on, on other planets uh, as we had here. So the general idea is that the first thing you need uh, for life to, to originate uh, is um, some sort of organic chemistry. So some, um, some combination of you know, complex organic molecules that are the building blocks of biomolecules. So think about these as like amino acids, which are the building blocks of, of proteins uh, or of the different letters of the RNA or, or DNA uh, alphabet. So the first, the first question to ask is how often do you form these building blocks? Then these building blocks need to somehow assemble uh, into uh, things that are similar to RNA and DNA. Uh, and then this uh, RNA-based uh, life uh, probably evolved into some into what we have today, which is RNA and DNA-based uh, life. But the important thing is that this all start with the formation of these building blocks, this where it says, you know, prebiotic chemistry is around four, uh, four billion years ago. So one of the questions we can ask is, what did it take here on Earth to get to that first step? And then how likely is that to happen on other planets? The most um, plausible scenario uh, for the origin of, um, of these building blocks uh, is through a, a hydrogen cyanide mediated chemistry that take place in the things like lakes where you have some access to UV light uh, from, the, from the sun, you have these um, molecules are not very good for life and exist, but we're very good for, for uh, creating these this building blocks and then some sort of watery, uh, watery body. Preferably this water, watery body should be rather small so you can you know, concentrate the kind of uh, building blocks of life that you are uh, making. 
So how often uh, do we get planets like that? Well, the first criteria that the planet like that needs to uh, fulfill is that it's actually, it's not too different from the Earth. That it is a small and rocky planet that has some, maybe um, that is not completely covered by water because remember we wanted to be able to concentrate uh, our uh, precursors. Um, and also that it's sitting at a temperature that is neither too hot nor too cold, but it's the right temperature for water to be liquid. Since this was a, a water-based water uh, kind of life. So how often do we get planets in this so-called so habitable zone that could have these watery lakes uh, around it? Well, we don't know for sure, uh, but the best estimates we have is that in our galaxy alone, there's something like 1 billion uh, of these planets. So 1 billion is a very large number. Uh, it's a rather small percentage of the planets in the galaxy, but it's a, a large enough number that if organs of life is something that happens easily and frequently, we should have really a cosmos out there that is teeming with life. But of course, uh, just having a planet that is the right temperature to have water doesn't really guarantee that it has water on it. You could imagine this kind of temperate planet sitting at the same distance from its star as the Earth is sitting from the sun, uh, but just happen to not have any water either incorporated into it or delivered to it uh, later in its life. So we should ask ourselves also how often you get water uh, to, a, to a planet. Uh, now, it might be somewhat surprising, but water turns out to be incredibly abundant where stars are forming. It's actually one of the most common molecules uh, in the universe, and we always see it in these clouds that stars and planets emerge from. Uh, not only that, water is a pretty robust molecule, and we have good evidence for that the water that we see in these clouds uh, survives the entire sequence of star and planet formation and pretty regularly becomes incorporated uh, into planets. So we have, so these 1 billion planets that were sort of the right temperature, we think a large fraction of them likely do have access to water. The second question though to, to ask is, well, are there any building blocks around for forming these uh, you know, building blocks of life. So how often do you get the planet that is, well, maybe it has water, but does it have any of this hydrogen cyanide, for example, on it? You know, this was the other building block that we needed to get this ordinance of life chemistry, uh, chemistry working. So we can uh, look into this. Uh, and the way that we uh, do that is using this very beautiful telescope, which is really an array of telescopes uh, done in Chile, um, it, which operates at uh, micro wavelengths. So the same kind of wavelength as you, know, as you use in a microwave uh, is also really powerful to let us identify organic molecules in these planet forming disks. Molecules like hydrogen cyanide, they rotate. And every time they rotate, they emit a photon. Uh, which happens to have a wavelength at microwaves. And we can gather these photons with these arrays of telescopes and tell how much hydrogen cyanide or other molecules that we're interested in that exist where planets are assembling. 
Uh, and when we turn our telescopes towards some of these disks uh, where, where planets are forming, uh, we do see a lot of hydrogen cyanide. So what you're seeing here are towards five different disks, uh, only photons that's coming from hydrogen cyanide, uh, which means that this molecule is very abundant uh, where, where planets are assembling. It's abundant, it's widespread. Or in cartoon form, when we're sitting down in this planet-forming disk stage where planets are assembling, they will be assembling surrounded not just by water, but also by uh, hydrogen cyanide. So if I were to sort of sum up this, this part of the, of the talk, uh, so we have many planets, first of all, we have many planets. Uh, some fraction of them, maybe a percent or so, uh, are what we call habitable. There's the right temperature. They're sitting at the right distance from their star. And based on our uh, astronomical observations of the chemical environment within which these planets form, um, we also think that they many of them have the right preconditions for similar origins of life as we had here, here on Earth. What we do not know yet is if any of them are actually inhabited, because that all depends, remember, on how how often the same sequence that we think developed here on Earth actually develops uh, on other planets. You know, in the decades to come, though, one of the main goals uh, of astronomers uh, is to try to figure this out and whether th there's actually life on some of these planets. And the way that uh, we or they are going to do it is by looking at the atmospheres, uh, atmospheric compositions of these exoplanets. So a planet that is living like Earth uh, emits uh, gases uh, into the atmosphere, things like methane, for example, uh, which has a spectral feature, uh, which can be observed by telescopes. And there's especially some combination of molecules that we think are very unlikely to come from anything but life if they are, if they are detected in any of these planets. This is, however, both a technically challenging and sort of a theoretically challenging project. I mean, the first thing that astronomers uh, need to really figure out is um, what kind of molecules are produced by life? What kind of molecules should we be looking for uh, in these exoplanet atmospheres? Then we also need to do a whole other set of sort of chemical thinking and what kind of molecules could a dead planet produce under different circumstances? Uh, once we have uh, those two sort of buckets, um, we need to think about how do we deal with very, very limited data. So these plants are far away, which means that often we only get sort of the whole planet in a single pixel. Uh, well, in the decades to come, we will get the whole planet in a single pixel, which means that we'll get, get this sort of global average of uh, of gas abundances. It's not like Earth, we can sort of map out <coughs> where, where different molecules are sitting at different places in the atmosphere. And bring all this together, we're then going to have to make some sort of probabilistic estimate of if we see a certain combination of molecules, how likely is that planet to actually have, have life on it. But this is where astronomy is heading, and it's really very exciting sort of next few decades, whether we will start finding the planets that look, uh, look living. Um, so in the meantime, it is of course speculation whether there is uh, life on, on any of them, um, but 
just in case we do discover life, we should be ready with some theological, uh, well, theological speculations. So that's where I want to, to head back to. Um, so what does this have to, have to do with, with theology? Well, I think, first of all, I think there's a couple of obstacles that we want to remove. Um, there's, um, there's an idea among, among some that if the Bible doesn't mention something, then it's in conflict with it. So the Bible doesn't mention extraterrestrials. Um, and therefore, the idea would be that extraterrestrial life is somehow in, in conflict with the biblical understanding of the word. Uh, this is not uh, the teaching of the Catholic Church. Uh, the Bible mentions rather few things that are that are found outside of the Middle East. And uh, the Bible has never really been read by, by the church as an encyclopedia of universal knowledge. Uh, rather, what the Bible contains is what we need to know for our salvation. So I guess one of the conclusions you could draw is that knowing about the existence of extraterrestrials is not necess necessary uh, for, for salvation. Um, th this is a, you know, this is a reasonable conclusion that I <coughs> wholeheartedly agree with, but this doesn't mean that the existence or non-existence of extraterrestrial life is completely without theological uh, significance. Um, another obstacle that I want to, to address before getting to the more I guess, positive parts is that there is um, there's an idea that if if life is widespread, <coughs> excuse me, that if life is widespread in the universe, that somehow proves that organs that life can come into existence through natural processes. Uh, that it wouldn't require direct action from God and therefore somehow makes God uh, less, less important, uh, less uh, powerful. Uh, there are both scientific and philosophical puzzles with uh, life emerging out of chemistry, but I don't think they're necessarily any theological ones. Now, most Christians, and this is definitely a teaching of the Catholic Church, uh, have for a long time believed that, that God primarily acts in the word through secondary causes and of, through laws of nature, um, as well as free acts of humans. So while we don't understand from a scientific point of view, this you know, hypothetical law that would allow chemistry to evolve into biology, uh, it th doesn't mean that God would be any smaller if such a law exists. Uh, I think one way to sort of intuit this is that it's not, you know, for, you know, for us, it's not necessarily easier uh, to uh, say it's not necessarily easier to create through the agency of another than to create, create something ourselves. Uh, anyone has tried to teach a child to do something, whether it's to read or to build something versus reading or building yourself, I think would would agree that it's quite a lot harder to actually create through someone else than it is to just do something yourself. So with those obstacles, hopefully put to the side, um, what, what, is the sort of more, uh, what is the significance of any, of whether the universe is full of life or not? Well, if we find out that life is abundant, uh, this, this would show us that the, 
the universe we live in, you know, was created uh, to have, have life emerge in it. It would mean that there must be some law, some chemical law that pushes their chemical self-assembly uh, in, into biology, which from a scientific point would be also super, uh, super interesting. But I think from a theological point of view, it would show us um, sort of a creative power that's built into the structure and the laws of the universe. Um, this is, uh, I think, for, for both scientific and theological reasons, the, the universe that I think we inhabit, one where there is rather widespread uh, life. Uh, I cannot read uh, the biblical story, the creation story, or especially Genesis 1, and not come away with a feeling that God is this artist who, who, sings, you know, who sings the universe in, into, and all its inhabitants into existence, and does so very joyfully. And it's difficult to imagine that he would not, this to me, that he would not have filled the, the cosmos with more living things than ourselves. But this is, of course, speculation. And if there is, if we are the only life in the universe, if there is no one else, that, that makes for, I think, a more solemn universe uh, where, you know, the earth with us on it uh, are the are in some sense the arc of the universe carrying all life there is uh, through through time and space. And there, there is a striking beauty, I think, about that universe too, that really brings to the forefront sort of the preciousness uh, of our own home, of the, our own garden here. I think a common um, challenge to this idea is that why would a god <clears throat> make the cosmos uh, so uh, incredibly large um, if all if the only life that he intended to bring forth within it would be here on our planet. Um, that actually I don't think is really a problem. If there's anything that we know from the biblical story is that God is this super abundant giver and creator. And it wouldn't really be against his personality, I think, to create an entire universe for us to simply to simply enjoy. But as I said, that being said, um, I do think there are rather compelling, uh, both scientific and at least somewhat, uh, somewhat on the theological side as well, reasons to, to think that, that life uh, should be rather, rather common uh, in the universe. But so far, we've been talking about life very generally. And what I've had in the back of my mind is something like bacteria. So something very, very simple. We haven't yet taken the leap into, I think, the kind of extraterrestrials that most of us are actually interested in, which are of the more intelligent kind, uh, someone who's more, more similar to us. Uh, those would be difficult to detect um, via atmospheric, that these kind of atmospheric studies, uh, because we wouldn't expect them to, to really leave any other trace in the atmosphere than any other living things uh, on that planet. So instead, what people have been, um, well, so I get to how we can try to detect it, but instead, what people have been trying to do is just trying, just as we try to think about, can we, based on Earth, tell something about the likelihood of their beings or bacterial life? Can we, based on Earth and its uh, evolution of life, tell something about the likelihood of there being other 
uh, extraterrestrials like ourselves out there. So I want to go back to our timeline uh, on Earth. So our 4.6 billion year, billion year history. So what you will see is that it took up until around half a billion years ago before there was any animals, before there were multicellular uh, animals here on Earth. That's a long time without evolving towards what we would see as intelligent animals, so our, our forefathers. It suggests that something rather special had to happen here on Earth to have this switch from complex but bacterial life into, into animal life. And of course, specific is the opposite of, of general. So I don't think we can assume that just because we have um, we have an origins of life on the planet, we will always, or even maybe most of the time, move towards intelligent animals. That might be quite, quite rare. Um, still, that of course does not mean that we shouldn't be, uh, be looking uh, for it. And the ways, the most traditional way uh, to look for these intelligent extraterrestrials is to look for radio signals. Uh, this is a long-standing program within NASA uh, to, to search for this sort of putative um, or potential radio signals from, uh, from other planets. There are other things that people have come up with as well. Um, maybe we should be looking for industrial pollution in these atmospheres, really looking for molecules that not just can't come from a dead planet, but also can't come from, from life without some sort of, let's say, chemical, uh, chemical industry. Uh, an even more speculative idea is to look for stars that are dimmer than they should be with the idea that if you're really advanced civilization, uh, so continue to thrive for, let's say, hundreds of millions of years, uh, they will build these sort of giant solar panels that will encapsulate a large portion of, uh, of their star. But if, uh, you know, the existence of extraterrestrial life or speculation this is, of course, all, all the more so. So I do again want to emphasize that we are in the sort of world of science still, but we are definitely in the sort of realm of, of scientific speculation. But if, these, if such extraterrestrials do exist, uh, what would that mean as or theologically speaking? I think the first thing to, to maybe keep in mind, and this hopefully reassuring, is that if such beings exist, if rational extraterrestrials exist, and if somebody has built an industry, we can assume they are not just intelligent animals, but, but rational creatures, then every single one of them must be the very specific creation of God, since we do not believe that a rational soul can emerge through natural processes, but does require this direct creation uh, from God. And that should be reassuring, I think, that it's not going to be like the universe so on its own accord brings forth other rational uh, civilizations. Uh, but what are some potential, uh, potential issues uh, if, if these rational extraterrestrials exist? I think one idea is really the continuation of the story that we started out telling about moving us more and more sort of into the periphery of the cosmos, if we're not even sort of the only rational beings around. Um, how can we believe that we are these sort of special friends or special creation uh, of, of God? I mean, if we, if we read uh, Genesis, 
we are described as, you know, as the pinnacle of creation, as, as made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, if there are extraterrestrials out there, uh, wouldn't that sort of make our relationship with God less, uh, less special? Uh, I think not. I mean, in one sense, we might just want to consider any rational soul, body composite, this, you know, this weird creature that spans the biological and the eternal life as human, as theologically uh, human. Uh, and in that sense, maybe it's not more threatening to share God with a separate, uh, with another civilization than it is to share it with billions of other humans uh, here, here on earth. Um, I think maybe the, what I think of it is, is actually a complete lack of threat to, to our, both our dignity and our special friendship uh, with God. Um, maybe it can be further clarified by considering that we actually already know uh, of intelligent beings uh, other than humans. One of the things that's uh, very much part of the Christian story are our angels. And angels are these other intelligent creatures, right? Um, and the existence of angels through, uh, is if, um, has been the opposite of a threat to our relationship with God. Uh, on the contrary, uh, their presence has in many ways throughout history, throughout salvation history, deepened our friendship uh, with God rather than diminished it. A much more serious uh, theological objection to, to rational extraterrestrials arises when we consider our salvation story and especially the role of the incarnation uh, in it. So I mean, Christians believe, we believe that the second person of the Trinity took on human nature to save us from our sins, restore us to right relationship with God and open the gates of heaven to the human race. If these rational extraterrestrials exist, how could they possibly fit into this salvation story? Well, I think there are sort of four possible some answers to that question or four logical options. Uh, the first one is that, well, if they exist, uh, they don't necessarily have to have sinned and therefore might not need uh, the incarnation to restore their relationship with God. So that would be option one. Option two would be that they might have fallen just as we fell, um, but God might have chosen for some reason to not rescue them while, while he chose to rescue us. Option three would be that they did fall and they were saved through, um, through the incarnation of God as Jesus Christ from Nazareth. So the incarnation of, of Christ was also salvific for these other civilizations. And then option four is that uh, they did fall and God did send a rescue mission for them, but it did not involve uh, the incarnation that we experienced here on earth. So if we start from the beginning, so number one is definitely a possibility. There, it's not, it, it is not a necessity for a race to fall. Uh, our fall was not, was not necessary. On the other hand, it seems like all the sort of beings that we know of, uh, so angels as well as humans, well, I guess all the humans, initial humans fell, and a good portion of the angels fell as well. So if the universe is teeming with these extra, rational extraterrestrials, I would assume that some of other ones have fallen as well. 
But this is very much a speculation. It might be that they do exist and they're all staring at us with complete wonder how we could have possibly fallen uh, away from God given sort of the choice that we had before us. If we take option two, um, could an extraterrestrial race have, have fallen uh, and not been saved? Well, on the one hand, God doesn't owe, did not owe us uh, our salvation and does not owe any extraterrestrial race theirs. Uh, at the same time, this seems so counter to, to anything we know uh, about the God uh, of the Bible, about the God we believe in, that I would kind of want, I would like to take this number two off the table rather quickly and move on to three. Uh, could incarnation of, of God uh, be salvific for creatures uh, we could think of as theologically human, uh, but not biologically human? Uh, so a straightforward reading of scripture would suggest not, I think. Uh, Jesus' relation with Adam is emphasized at multiple, uh, multiple places. Uh, so, I mean, if we have Paul writing, right, that for, for us by a man came death, by a man has all, come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But I think it is still within the realm of possibility that uh, one could imagine a reading of the New Testament uh, that sort of de-emphasizes that biological connection and focuses on this sort of theological and philosophical connection between uh, Jesus and, uh, and Adam, and therefore between Jesus and any other kind of extraterrestrials. Um, but if that is true, we face another puzzle, uh, which is um, why would we get this sort of like special closeness uh, with Christ uh, while, while other races uh, would not? That brings us uh, or like, wouldn't that in some sense put us back at the center of the universe in a rather sort of unsatisfying uh, way, maybe a rather arrogant uh, way? Uh, so I don't know why this would possibly be true that we would be, these are the beings from which salvation emerges uh, to the rest of the universe why God would have chosen to become incarnate as one of us. Uh, but if it is true, it is not arrogant. It is not arrogant to say that salvation comes from, from the Jews or through the Jews, even if you're Jewish, uh, because that is a true, that, that is a belief that we hold, hold us true. And it, if we look through salvation history, it actually seems kind of like, like God does this a lot, where he selects a very small people or sometimes a single person and starts his salvific mission from that. So I don't think this is as um, strange of an idea as maybe it could be seen as first sight. Uh, but number four is also something that some people have considered. So this is, you know, can, can extraterrestrials be saved through some other means? Um, in some sense, they certainly could. Uh, there's nothing that uh, would stop God from becoming incarnate more than once. Uh, something that uh, St. Thomas uh, did consider in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, on the other hand, it seems like um, any kind of, again, of sort of straightforward reading of scriptures or theological understanding of, of the immensity of the incarnation makes it sort of unfitting 
uh, that it should happen more than once. It seems like God becoming incarnate and dying uh, for his creation is a cosmological event that should suffice not just for us, but for an entire fallen, uh, fallen cosmos. So given that actually each of these options have some rather non-attractive features about it, sort of theologically speaking, there are, uh, there are Catholic thinkers who, who find it very unlikely that these rational extraterrestrials uh, could, could exist. And this is certainly a reasonable opinion considering these uh, theological difficulties. Uh, other uh, Catholic thinkers have opposed that view, just focusing on what seems like this sort of creative overflow uh, of God as displayed uh, here on earth. And think, think it's rather strange that you wouldn't find a similar abundance if you go out uh, in this vast cosmos. Now, until there is a scientific and or theological uh, advances on this topic, uh, we are free to, to ponder uh, all, all of these options. And if you find this fascina fascinating, I guess I would love to hear where your contemplation uh, leads you. My own personal hope is that they do exist. Um, I think it would be absolutely incredible uh, to get to hear about uh, God's relationship with a race that is completely alien uh, to us and hopefully see like that entire new side of, of God and who he is and learn to know him better by this friendship with, with another race that have their own special uh, friendship with God.